Well, good morning. Happy Friday. You made it to the last day of week two of classes. Praise the Lord. Well, let's get into this. Uh, as the Mulan song goes, I haven't seen the live action one, but the animated one. Let's get down to business. We have a short time and uh, we don't have enough time to consider everything, so we're just going to focus in and uh, get busy about looking at Jesus and what God's Word says. Let me pray. Father, it was your pleasure to send your Son on our behalf, in our place, and to afflict him for your wrath to be on him, Lord, for us to free us, that we might be forgiven, that we might know you. Thank you for that. Lord, draw us into your word this morning. Help us to consider what it has to say and the bearing it has on our lives. And we ask for your help and the power of your spirit to do this. In Christ's name, amen. The wisest man on the face of the earth, one of the wisest men on the face of the earth, notably the wisest man on the face of the earth at the time, at his time, said this, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Who was the wise man? Anyone recall? Solomon, right? Solomon says, It's better, it's better, to mourn. It's better to go to a funeral. It's better to consider death because that's our end. To dwell there than to live it up, than to laugh, uh, than to, to make your heart merry, than to spend your day in enjoyment because this is the end of man. Why do we then avoid the reality? I don't know about you. I like avoiding the concept of death. I don't know about your experience with other people, but like the purpose or the meaning of life and what happens after we die are some of the big questions that everyone seems to avoid. I remember bringing this up one day in, uh, at work and uh, one, one guy responded to me, well, I can't uh, know those yet, but when I take philosophy class, then I'll know. <clears throat> no, you won't. That's not true. <clears throat> We all know we die. None of us can avoid that reality. It's waiting. Do we live like that's not going to happen? Do we think that's not going to happen and so we don't dwell on that? Or or do we need to live like that's going to happen? Do we need to dwell on that reality? I think the wisest man on the face of the earth of his time, Jesus is the wisest of all, uh, he's on to something. He knew something that we need to know, words that we need to to heed. We need to consider death and that realm so we can actually live life to its fullest, so we can live with purpose, we can live with meaning. So, So where do we go? Do I just sit and think about the future and my death and what that will look like? Do I sit and think about the reality that all people throughout human history have spent more time dead than alive? We have to go to this place called the cross, and that's where we read from this morning and where we'll turn to right now. 
Uh, If you go back with me just briefly, I want to reference the first verse that was read, Luke 22, verse 37. This seems to be one of the main points Luke is trying to drive uh, home to his readers as he gets into the cross of Christ, gets to Jesus' death, as he wants us to know one thing. Jesus is innocent. And he quotes here from Isaiah. He's referencing Isaiah 53, verse 12. Jesus says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. As we look at the cross of Christ, I want you to consider the bearing that what Jesus did and what the the circumstances around his death how that plays a factor in your life. Is it true? Do you believe it? <clears throat> now, I know most of you believe it. I believe that to be true in this room. I don't doubt. Some of you don't believe this. And then I also don't doubt <clears throat> that we live like we don't believe this at times in our lives, right? So we have these factors at play. Jesus is innocent. Let's look at how Luke establishes Jesus' innocence. Um, I think first, uh, what we can't ignore is the the fact that Judas betrays Jesus. This is not the main point to establish Jesus' innocence, but, but someone who's this close to Jesus for a bribe betrays Jesus, and then he betrays him with a kiss. You can see this in verse 47 and, and following. But in chapter 23, where we read from, probably most notably first, and then three times following, or or three times, is Pilate. The Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate asks him, if you start with me in chapter 23 of Luke, in verse 3, Pilate says to him, or asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate continues to find no guilt in Jesus. You look down with me at verse 14. He says, I did not find guilt in the, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And then as well in verse 22, what evil has he done? I find no guilt in him. Jesus is going to the cross Guilty people go to the cross. Guilty people are crucified. And they're hung there, right, because of their crimes. But here we have the account of Pilate himself. He's willing to scourge Jesus. As you read the text, he's willing, okay, I'll, I'll scourge him, and then I'll release him. But the Jews are consistent. They're persistent. They want Jesus dead, right? And I think most notably... Verse 23, go there with me in 24. As we're reading this passage, as we get drawn up into the story, the actual account, the crowds, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And the sad statement in their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Can an innocent man... Be crucified. Jesus was crucified. Is he innocent? 
Well, it's not just Pilate, not just his assessment. Herod also found no guilt in Jesus. Go to verse 22. So we're looking at Judas betraying Jesus, Pilate finding no guilt in him. Now Herod is finding no guilt in in Jesus. Uh, And at verse excuse me, verse uh, verse 15, it says this, Pilate says, neither did Herod, Herod didn't find any guilt in him, for he sent him back to us. Jesus goes, and we're not going to read this, I'll just kind of uh, describe it briefly, but Jesus goes to Herod, and it's like Herod's ready to play with Jesus. I've heard about him. I'm curious. Will he show me a sign? I've been hearing all these wonders and all these miracles, and now here he is, Right? Jesus doesn't respond. Herod sends uh, Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate tells us that Herod didn't find him guilty of any of the charges because he's sent back to Pilate. Okay, is that enough evidence to say Jesus is truly innocent? Let's keep going. Luke wants to establish this. Look with me at verse 25. So the voices of the crowd prevailed. Jesus is now going to be crucified. Pilate gives in, although he said three times he finds no guilt in Jesus. He's innocent of the crimes that he's been accused of. Verse 25 says this, He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Very clearly, a guilty man, an insurrectionist, and a murderer is being released. What's said of Jesus up to this point? Is he guilty? Is he an insurrectionist? Is he a murderer? Is he blaspheming? Is he, is he lying? No, none of these charges can be established. But we see the contrast. This guy, Barabbas, we know, is released, and Jesus is led away to cruci- be crucified. So we have Judas, we have Pilate, we have Herod, we have this man who's freed, but Jesus is condemned. Now read with me in, in verse 32, another point that Luke wants to establish. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. There's two criminals side by side to Jesus, and we'll skip down further. We'll come back up in a second but um, and consider a little, this a little bit more. Verse 41, um, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 40. One of the criminals looks at the other who's reviling or blaspheming, speaking strongly against Jesus who's on the cross. He says, don't you fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for for we are receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The assessment, Paul shows us, Paul, excuse me, um, Luke. Uh, Luke shows us, and if I said Paul earlier, I think I meant Luke. Uh, You never know when you misspeak, right? Uh, Luke shows us there's two criminals, but then there's Jesus So the question still lingers, is Jesus truly innocent? And it's a question we have to answer ourselves, right? But the evidence surrounding it, we see the shady business with Judas. We see Pilate's assessment. We see Herod's assessment. We see two criminal, we see uh, Barabbas who's freed, who is guilty. And Jesus is led away as he is guilty, although he isn't. We see the two criminals around him. And then the assessment of one of these criminals is, 
we're suffering what we deserve. And he tells the other criminal, don't you fear God? He's suffering what he doesn't deserve. This man is innocent. And I think the crowds and their response in verse uh, 47, excuse me, verse uh, 48, uh, give us an indication. Jesus, they saw, they recognized after his crucifixion that he was innocent. As well as verse 47, I skipped this one, but go back. So sequentially, there's the thief on the cross. Then there's the centurion. He's seen crucifixions. He's seen guilty men die. Men and women die on the cross. And then he sees something that he's not seen before, perhaps. And he recognizes and he exclaims, certainly this man was innocent. And then the crowds go home and they're beating their breasts. Breasts. There's another man who does that earlier in Luke. There's the Pharisee praying to God, lifting up his eyes and his and he's praying and he's proud and he recognizes how great and how worthy he is and how God has made him unlike this tax collector. He's upright, has a right standing with God. He's so, he's so righteous, he can look up God, look up to God and exclaim the wonders of his life. And he can contrast himself with this tax collector who's a sinner. And then the tax collector, he's he's opposite. He He won't look up to God, but he recognizes his sin and he calls out to God, beating his breast. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. He recognizes his own sin, right? That's how that word, that phrase is used earlier. And then here it's used as the crowds go home. No doubt they recognized their own sin. Some of these, if not all of these, are crying out for Jesus to be crucified, and then he's crucified and they regret it. So so what what does all that have to do with you and me? Do you believe that Jesus was innocent? That he died the death that he didn't deserve to die? That there was, as the Bible says, there was no sin in him. Without sin, holy and blameless Because if Jesus died and he's innocent, we want to connect that to the purpose for which he died. He died for you. He died for me. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah makes this clear to us. And uh, Luke is already quoting from Isaiah. I'll start in verse 1. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Isaiah says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone, gone astray. We have turned everyone 
to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The assessment of the people surrounding Jesus's crucifixion was that he was innocent. He wasn't guilty. He didn't deserve the death that he died. He didn't commit the crime worthy of that death. And much broader, he didn't commit any crime. He was pure and innocent without sin to the fullest degree. I don't know about you and your life and where you're at, but often the assessment of Jesus, the, the, how we think about him, is we think he deserved to die, right? Look at how he's afflicted. Doesn't that tell you something about his life? Isn't he getting what he justly deserves? We so often think about that in human experience. Well, that's happening to them because God is judging them, right? Well, Jesus, you're crucified and God is judging you rightfully. It's no different, right? But Isaiah tells us that's actually not what's taking place here. We've rejected him. We said he's, we've despised him. Uh, we esteem that he's stricken and smitten by God. But verse 5, Isaiah 53, 5 says, you know what? He was actually pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that he bore brings us peace. Jesus is suffering, and it's unjustly. He is innocent, and he's suffering for our sin on the cross. Have you wrestled with that yourself? A man went to die on a cross, and he was not just a mere man. He was actually God. If you continue to read the Gospels and you read sequentially, you're here and you're like, this guy is innocent at the end of Luke. And then you open up to John 1 and you realize, not that you haven't seen it before, but just go with me. You realize that's God. God came down to earth to die for us. And then you read a few verses later, still in the first few first. Um, 10, 12 verses of John, and it's like God came to his own, and he was rejected by his own. We naturally reject Jesus. Jesus came knowing that, and he came to bear our sins and bear our iniquities. Can you be on the fence when it comes to Jesus? Can you be indecisive? Can you be apathetic? Can you be passive? You have to deal with this reality. An innocent man that the Bible proclaims is actually God himself stepped down to die for your sin. To die for your sin. Is that true? Let's consider that question as we can, as we see two different responses to Jesus here. Verse 39 of Luke 23, go back there with me. There were uh, one of two, one of the criminals, excuse me, who were hanged, railed at him, at Jesus, saying, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! Come on! I mean, it just been said he's the King of the Jews. People were mocking him. If you're the King of the Jews, save yourself. I see the inscription. Aren't you the King? Haven't you done these great things? Here I'm stuck. I'm dying. Free us from the cross. You're in the same fate as me. Free us." Save yourself. Save me. He's nice. He says, save us. Verse 40, but the other rebuked him saying, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? We 
indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's go back to considering the end, right, to death. There was no one, there are no people more lost probably than these men on the cross. Like we're all in the same estate when we're born into this world, as we live in this world. We're lost, but these guys are at the end. They can't get off of the cross. They can't get down. They're stuck up there. What do they do? It seems like these two people embody the responses of all people. You either get to the end and you refuse. You refuse to see Jesus for who he is. He's innocent and he's suffering for you. He's taking your place. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. Yes, he can come down and save himself and save everyone. But the way that he actually saves everyone is by staying on the cross. That's how he saves. So he stayed on the cross, right? This one thief, criminal on the cross, responds to Jesus, continuing to reject him. We don't know his backstory. Maybe he was in the crowd when he heard Jesus preaching the Sermon on the Mount, right? Maybe he walked up and said, I will follow after you. We don't know his experience with with Jesus up to this point. We don't have that backstory. Perhaps it was there. There's some experience, some rejection, but we know he continues to reject Jesus. And then you see this other man at the end of his life. How does he respond? He recognizes Jesus for who he is. He's helpless. He's at the end. And he says, "I I deserve this. Jesus doesn't deserve this. And he speaks against the other criminal. Don't you understand? We get what we deserve. Not this man. He is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And then he recognizes that Jesus can save him. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. He knew Jesus was the king. He knew Jesus would come into his kingdom. And what did Jesus say to him? Today, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Where's the end? Where's your destiny? Is it with Jesus? Is there the the hope that when you die, you will be with Jesus in paradise? Or do you continue to reject him? Let me just press in on this environment and anyone watching. We know in this environment, you can act like you have it together. You can act like you're a Christian. You can avoid what's really going on in your soul, in your heart, the apathy, the rejection of Christ. And do you know how we see that? You begin taking steps away little by little. It's not overnight, but you begin taking steps away from Christ to where your response will be rejection. And we will all see it and we will all know it. It'll be clear. Jesus died on the cross for you. He was innocent. You are guilty. He died to free you from your sin. The innocent one suffered for you. Why? Because he loves you. You need to deal with this. He bore your iniquities. And you had no regard for him and perhaps still have no regard for him, although there's the facade, there's the appearance. 
that you do because you're here, right? Or you're at church, or you're behaving a certain way in front of your family. Wrestle with that. Jesus can save you. He can save the most lost person, and he wants to save each and every person. He went to the cross. He bore the mockery, bore the shame, the guilt because of his love for us. The end of Luke says this, verse uh, 46 and 47, and and, uh, Jesus is speaking, uh, 45 says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day, third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Where are you at? Repent, turn from that, and you can be forgiven immediately. But if you carry on this course, you will find yourself at the end, still like the thief on the cross, rejecting Christ. Rejecting Christ. Brother or sister, Those of us who have responded like the other thief, we are guilty. He is innocent. And then Christ has saved us. We know the hope that we have, right? The future that awaits us. To be with Jesus in paradise. One day that's coming. How do we continue to kindle that flame of the assurance of our hope? Continue to go back to Christ, to go back to the Gospels, to go back to his word, to see how he suffered and he died in your place. Because so often the temptation is for us to somehow pay for our guilt and our shame and our sin. We can't forget Jesus bore it and that's enough. That's what's sufficient. God has made a provision for us in the church, the breaking of bread, communion, Remembering Jesus together regularly is what we need. So as we look at Christ, we don't reject him. We recognize he's our savior and we continue to need him each and every day. And we have a future, a hope that's in store for us. We'll be with him in paradise. But we know that we struggle to believe him in every aspect and every way of our lives, right? To have that sure hope each and every day. That's a reality. What do we do in those times, brother, sister, those of you who you know, you've trusted in Christ? Repent. Confess that to Jesus. He bore that sin, that unbelief on the cross for us. And you are forgiven. First John reminds us of that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we know he's faithful and just and he can forgive, he will forgive us? We look at him on the cross. That's why he was there, that we might be forgiven. He was innocent. We were guilty. He bore our shame. He bore our iniquity on the cross. It's paid for. It's fulfilled. Praise God for that. 